Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. The topic of this episode is hell. What does the church teach about it? Is it real? What about the devil and the fallen angels? Is it reasonable to hope that hell is empty? Bishop breaks it down this week. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman, joined by our good bishop. Thank you for being here. You're welcome, Kyle. Good to be here. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Uh, The topic for today is maybe one that would scare some people, but we talked about purgatory and started getting into hell a little bit when talking about purgatory. thought rather than open up that can of worms, maybe that has its own episode by itself. And then maybe we can have a future episode on on heaven to complete the trilogy. Yeah, I think... I think we need to talk about heaven and not just about purgatory and hell. I think we have to complete it. <laughs> it's like whenever you have a, the hymn in church and it ends with the death and there's like, the last verse has the resurrection. <laughs> we, we can't end on that. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, we could we could talk a lot about hell and, you know, and the church's understanding, what we, what we read in scripture about mm-hmm. it. Um, so, yeah, let's go for it. Okay. So maybe start off with what is hell? I, I, I guess, is it for sure a, a real thing or is it, is it potentially just an imaginary thing that we use like a, an, an allegory kind of a thing? No, it's real. Okay. Uh, that's a, a dogma of our faith. Hell is real. And, of course, Jesus spoke often. He would refer to it most often as Gehenna, which mm-hmm. I can talk about in a little while. Okay. But it is, the, as the Catechism says, the state of definitive self-exclusion from communion with God and the blessed. So let me repeat that. Okay. The state of definitive self-exclusion from communion with God and the blessed is called hell. And Jesus spoke often about it and used the word Gehenna of the unquenchable fire reserved for those who to the end of their lives refuse to believe and be converted, where both soul and body can be lost. So the teaching of the church affirms the existence of hell and that it is something eternal. So immediately after death, the souls of those who die in a state of mortal sin, according to the catechism, descend into hell, where they suffer the punishments of hell, eternal fire. So the chief punishment of hell is eternal separation from God. Mm -hmm. And it's only in God that we have life and that we have happiness. That's what we were created for, that's what we long for. So when you think about hell, it is, pre- it is really a horrible reality. And notice it said uh, in the catechism, definitive self-exclusion from communion with God and, right. and with the blessed. So God doesn't predestined anyone to go to hell. Hmm. It's up to us, we willingly turn away from God in mortal sin. And when we do that and we persist in this until the end, then we have really, in a sense, chosen hell, chosen final damnation. So I think that's the the nucleus of the church's teaching. A lot more can be said. I'd like to talk about maybe how this developed through scripture uh, Mm -hmm. when we read about hell, beginning with the Old Testament. 
the Old Testament, it's very interesting, especially Jewish thought and Jewish belief in its early stages, there was no real belief in the afterlife. Now, in the latter part of the Old Testament, you do see some belief in the afterlife. But we find the word sheol, S-H-E-O-L. It's a Hebrew word. It's the abode of the dead. Mm -hmm. So there was this belief that the souls of the dead, both righteous and Mm -hmm. unrighteous, so good and evil people, went after death to this place of the souls of the dead called Sheol, S-H-E-O-L. And we, you know, have the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Sheol is is translated as Hades. So we often see that word. And of course, also in the New Testament, which was written in Greek, not Hebrew, they use this word Hades. In the Old Testament, they're basically the same thing. And actually... There was a belief among the Greeks who were not Jews in Hades. So it's kind of this correspondence between what the Hebrews would be speaking about Sheol. The Greeks would be speaking about Hades. Now they had some different understandings of it, but it was basically the same, I would say, an underworld, a place of the dead, abode of the dead. So we see this in Greek mythology, okay. uh, but we also see it in the Hebrew scriptures. And if you see, for example, in the book of Numbers, there was this idea that it was under the earth. It was something, a place under the earth. And it had, it was like a city, if you read Isaiah, with gates and bars. It was really a land of darkness, which really all that was left of the human being after they died was kind of a shadow of their existence. It wasn't like the full person. And there was no wisdom there. There was no work being done there. No one there praises God. It was a pretty gloomy place. Of course, we read about Jesus's descending into this realm. Mm -hmm. I'll talk about that in a little bit. Jesus descended into hell. But before we get to that, it's interesting to see in the latter part of the Old Testament, when they started to believe that there was a possibility of a true afterlife. Uh and that there was more to it than what they what we see in the earlier parts of the Old Testament. The New Testament, as I said, you know, speaks of Hades, translating Sheol as Hades. And then there's another thing that happens in the New Testament. There's a distinction between Hades or Sheol and Gehenna. Okay? okay? Because By the end of the Old Testament, they saw this place where the dead go temporarily to await resurrection. Now, that wasn't the idea earlier on in the Old Testament. But Gehenna is a place of eternal punishment for the damned. Hades is more associated with death. And then in the final judgment, the wicked, the evil dead are brought out of Hades and cast into the lake of fire, which the fire of Gehenna. Okay. In the book of Revelation, you, for example, you see that reference to the lake of fire. Now, one passage that I think that really can help us in seeing how this development 
is the parable of Lazarus and the rich man mm -hmm. in the Gospel of Luke chapter 16. Because here we have Jesus referring to this uh -huh. by giving us this parable. So I think everybody, I don't have to read, everyone remembers the, the story of the poor man, Lazarus, who was ignored by the rich man. And um, there he was, Lazarus, covered with sores, lying at, at his door, and this rich man would come by and just ignore him. They both died. And when the poor man died, where did he go? It says in the parable, he was carried away by angels to the bosom of Abraham. Mm -hmm. Okay, what happened to the rich man? He died, he was buried, and he went to the netherworld where he was in torment, uh -huh. okay? And he cried out uh, to Abraham and Lazarus, who were kind of on the other side, to have pity on him. And of course, there was, according to the parable, a great chasm to prevent anyone from crossing who might go from one side to the other. So what are we seeing here? That this Hades, where everyone goes after they die, according to some of the older beliefs, we have Jesus speaking of another state of the righteous. Mm -hmm. So whereas the rich man went to Hades, it really was Gehenna. I mean, he was going to hell. Right. Whereas Lazarus was going into this other place where he isn't yet with God, it's not heaven, but hmm. where there isn't this torment. So the church has, you know, especially the early church fathers, referred to that state where Lazarus was as the limbo of the fathers. So the just who died, um, okay. the limbo of the fathers. So we see, we think of people like Abraham, of course, because he's, but think of people like Moses or mm -hmm. King David, uh, all these just men and women. Is that part of Hades? It's, well, it talks about a chasm. So if it is, it's separated. It's this other state that's kind of separated. And it's there that Jesus descended okay. to rescue them. So, And you mentioned that when you talked about purgatory, is that when we hear Jesus descended into hell, that might be a mistranslation that when they say hell, they don't mean hell, the place that you don't ever come back from, but this right. kind of almost a purgatory type of a place. Yeah, but I mean, I wouldn't, it's not purgatory um, because, I mean, I guess you could say it's similar. Okay. Yeah, I mean, t typically they call it the, the limbo of the fathers because purification is not necessarily needed, mm -hmm. but heaven's gates have not yet been opened, you know, until Christ's death and resurrection. So purification is not needed because why? I mean, you could have some of those blessed or just of the Old Testament who already were purified in this life, okay. and were, you know? So it's all, I mean, these are all, you know, we're talking about things kind of beyond our human experience, beyond right. time and, and, and space. But so it's a lot of speculation. But I think the core teachings are, are really important here. And the fact that when Jesus spoke of Gehenna, it was clearly 
a reference to eternal damnation. Okay. By the way, Gehenna comes from this area right outside Jerusalem that was um, like a big garbage heap where they would burn the garbage. Hmm. And it was, it stank and it was, um, and even earlier, there were worship of false gods there and, and sacrifices of children, human sacrifices. Wow. So it was like the most horrible place. Yeah. So that's why Jesus and others called, uh, well, Jesus referred then, and, and they called this place Gehenna. Now, when we hear the word Hades today, most people, I think, think of hell. Mm -hmm. So that's where confusion comes in. Like, yeah. what, which are we referring to here? So I think um, something that could shed some light on this, let me turn to the catechism, and it's uh, number 633, where it talks about Jesus's descent into hell. We say that uh, when we recite the Ap Apostles' Creed, it doesn't, it's not included in the Nicene Creed that we say on Sundays, but when we pray the Apostles' Creed, like when we pray the Rosary, we say he descended into hell, uh -huh. and on the third day he rose again from the dead. So let me quote number 633 of the Catechism. Scripture calls the abode of the dead to which the dead Christ went down, hell. Sheol in Hebrew, as mm -hmm. I've been saying, or Hades in Greek. Because those who are there are deprived of the vision of God. Such is the case for all the dead, whether evil or righteous, while they await the Redeemer. Which does not mean that their lot is identical as Jesus shows through the parable of the poor man, Lazarus, who was received into Abraham's bosom. It is precisely these holy souls who awaited their Savior in Abraham's bosom, whom Christ the Lord delivered when he descended into hell. Jesus did not descend into hell to deliver the damned, nor to destroy the hell of damnation but to free the just who had gone before him. So I hope, I mean, I get a lot of questions of people saying, what do we mean Jesus descended into hell? Now, it might be better if we used a different word than hell mm -hmm. there, because when we think of hell, we, we're referring to Gehenna. Right. Okay, we're referring to that eternal damnation. But when we say he did, Jesus descended into hell, we're not referring to that place. We're referring to the abode of the dead, mm -hmm. those who were just and righteous and are awaiting the Redeemer. And so Jesus de uh, delivered them. He descended into hell. He descended into this realm of the dead, the dead who were just and righteous, and he rescued them. One of my favorite passages in the office of readings of the liturgy of the hours is on holy saturday and if the listeners have any chance to read that homily it's an ancient homily for holy saturday and part of it is quoted in the catechism number 635 but i invite everyone to kind of listen to this and maybe meditate upon it it's a, a homily of holy saturday today a great silence reigns on earth a great silence and a great stillness. A great silence because the king is asleep. The earth trembled and is still. 
because God has fallen asleep in the flesh and he has raised up all who have slept ever since the world began. He has gone to search for Adam, our first father, as for a lost sheep. Greatly desiring to visit those who live in darkness and the shadow of death, he has gone to free from sorrow Adam in his bonds and Eve captive with him. He who is both their God and the son of Eve. I am your God who for your sake have become your son. I order you, O sleeper, to awake. I did not create you to be a prisoner in hell. Rise from the dead, for I am the life of the dead. Hmm. It's a beautiful meditation for Holy Saturday. And of course, Jesus ascended into heaven. He brought all these just dead with him to the highest heaven where God dwells. So we will talk a little bit more, I think, about who's in hell. Yeah. Uh, but um, might be better, Kyle, to talk a little bit about the devil and the fallen angels. Okay. Yeah, why don't we do that? We'll, we'll take a break. If anybody has questions for Bishop for a future episode, you can text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. And we can talk more about hell. If the fallen angels, is that allegory or if that's historical, uh, if it's reasonable to hope that hell is empty and more. Coming up on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Notre Dame Federal Credit Union has a special mission to serve the Catholic Church in America. In 2020 alone, we've served over 800 parishes, schools, and nonprofits in more than 25 dioceses nationwide. We are a member-owned, not-for-profit cooperative, working hard to create a national Catholic financial alternative to the for-profit banks. You already share our values. Why not share in our benefits? Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman, and our bishop has been talking about hell. And you did that whole first half without talking about the devil or Satan or fallen angels. And so to kind of get into that, is the whole story of the the fall of Lucifer, is that a historical event, do we believe? Or is that an allegory, something to explain how evil is present in our lives? It's real. Okay. Um, you know, I, I think historical event is hard to call it a historical event because when we talk about history, we're talking about this world of time. And, okay. um, but it's, it's real. It happened. Um, and, you know, throughout the sacred scriptures, we find mention of the devil, mention of Satan, mm -hmm. and the fall of the angels I'd like to talk about. Uh, first of all, the meaning of the, of the word Satan is from... Hebrew, it means to oppose, to harass, to tempt. Hmm. So Satan's the tempter, one mm -hmm. who makes us trip and fall and tries to get us to turn away from God. And then we have the word devil, which is from a Greek word, diabolos, which is an accuser, a slanderer. Hmm. And we see all kinds of synonyms for Satan in, in the Bible, you know, the evil one, Beelzebub the accuser, the tempter, the, the serpent, the great dragon, Lucifer. Mm -hmm. 
He's the father of lies. He's the prince of the world, the prince of darkness. Anyhow, I think it's good to start with the catechism like we usually do. And what does the catechism say about the devil and the fall? We profess in the creed that we believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. Okay, so we're talking here about angels, the invisible. Uh The fallen angel that we call Satan or the devil was at first a good angel, according to the catechism, created Mm -hmm. by God. We read in uh, the Fourth Lateran Council, which is probably the most important ecumenical council dealing with the devil. Okay. That that treats of devil and hell. It says the second Lateran Council, or Fourth Lateran Council, I'm sorry, says that the devil and the other demons were indeed created naturally good by God, but they became evil by their own doing. So the sin of these angels is referred to in scripture, their fall. In other words, they were created spirits. They had no bodies, created spirits who by their own free choice, irrevocably and radically rejected God and his reign, his, his rule. He sinned from the beginning, we read in scripture. He's a liar and the father of lies. What did he say to our first parents, to Adam and Eve? You will be like God. Hmm. So the sin, principal sin of the devil and the rebellious angels was rejection of God because of pride. And their choice was irrevocable. Their sin is unforgivable. There's no repentance for the angels after their fall, just as there is no repentance for men after death. We know Satan even tried to divert Jesus from the mission received from his father. He tempted Jesus in the desert. But the power of Satan, the catechism says, is not infinite. He's only a creature. He's powerful from the fact that he's a pure spirit, but he's still a creature. He may act in the world out of hatred for God and for Jesus, for the kingdom, cause great injuries, but he's not all powerful. God is, is more powerful. So we have this um, different times in scripture where it talks about Satan and this rebellion of the angels. Remember the parable of the, in Matthew 25, about the separation of the sheep and the goats. Mm-hmm. The son of man said to those on his left, out of my sight, you condemned into that everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Then we read in the second letter of St. Peter, did God spare even the angels who sinned? He did not. He held them captive in Tartarus. Now you might say, what's Tartarus? If you've ever seen that word, it's the term in Greek mythology to indicate the place of punishment in the underworld. St. John says the man who sins belongs to the devil because the devil is a sinner from the beginning. Now, the Catechism says it's a great mystery that providence should permit diabolical activity, but we know that in everything, God works for good with those who love him. One of the things that uh, our Lord said, or what he called Satan, was the prince of this world because he uses things of this world, material things, to distract us from God. He tempts us to adore 
material things, the sensual power, all of this rather than God. Mm -hmm. He also refers, Jesus also refers to the devil as the father of lies because he perverts the truth. That's what he did with Eve. He mm -hmm. perverted the truth. He fills our minds with doubts so that we rationalize why something is right, even though deep down we know it's wrong. He's the prince of darkness. He's very crafty. He, he tempts us with bad thoughts, hateful thoughts, pessimistic thoughts. Jesus called him the murderer. How is the devil the murderer? Because he seeks to kill the grace of God in our souls mm. and take our souls to hell. Now, traditionally, the devil is also known as Lucifer, which means bearer of light. Right. Well, that's because in the beginning, that's what he was. He was one of the seraphim, the highest choir of angels who see and adore God directly. So he lost that light. He lost that beauty. But we're confident. We always have to remember this. We, we should take the presence and power of Satan seriously. I mean, we do when we, before baptism, we say, do you reject Satan and all his works and all his empty promises? We repeat those every year. Mm -hmm. At Easter, before confirmation, there's this rejection or renunciation of the devil and of sin. Uh, so the church takes this seriously. But we're confident that the power of God will always triumph over the power of Satan, that good will triumph over evil, that love will triumph over hatred. Jesus came to destroy Satan and his works. We need to take it seriously. I, uh, one of the days of the week at night prayer, we read the passage from first letter of St. Peter, chapter 5, verse 8. St. Peter warned, stay sober and alert, your opponent the devil is prowling like a roaring lion, so looking for someone to devour. Mm. St. John Paul II gave a talk on the fall of the angels back in 1986. And um, it was interesting, Pope St. Paul VI in the 70s also addressed the issue of the existence of the devil okay. and demons, the fallen angels. Because, and he said very clearly, you should not see this as just some symbolic, mere symbol that the devil is real, mm -hmm. a real personal being. And John Paul taught the same thing because really, as I said, the Fourth Lateran Council dogmatically defined this, that the devil or Satan and the other demons were created good by God and have become evil by their own will. They made this choice. They rejected God. That's eternal. There's also a passage I forgot to mention in the letter of St. Jude in the New Testament, chapter 6, where it says, The angels who did not keep their own dignity but left their own dwelling are kept by the Lord in eternal chains in the darkness for the judgment of the great day. The devil is real, I guess, is the... Yeah. Yeah. So maybe just a, a little kind of recap review here. You mentioned the angels had free will or yeah. have free will. Yes. It, was it a one-time thing? Because part of the angels being different than humans is that they are in the presence of God. So I kind of wondered, do they make a choice? And it's it's an eternal choice. Like they're yeah. either good or bad from the beginning because they're in the presence of God. And they made that they choice. They know what they're, what they're saying yes to or saying no to. Whereas we, we have a chance to, to make good decisions and bad decisions every day partially because we don't have that fullness of 
an experience of being in the presence of God in the way that the angels do? That's true. I mean, when you talk about the intellect, the intellect of the angels, because as you said, they're in the presence of God, is greater than Mm -hmm. our intellect. But they are not all-knowing. Okay. It would be an error to say that they're omniscient, like God. They're not. Okay. They're still creatures. So they don't know all of God's plan, et right. cetera. So I think that's, that's important to realize. But, but like us, they're free. Mm-hmm. And it might seem that their sin could be greater than ours because of their greater intellectual knowledge. And having been in presence of God, I don't know. Uh, but it seems like the angels are either good or bad. You don't have kind of like these wishy-washy right. angels in the middle that are kind of yeah, they doing God's will one day choice. and then they kind of slip up the next day. They're, they're, cause, like, their choice use the word definitive. Yeah. Irrevocably? Yeah, it's irrevocable. Irrevocable, that's yeah, the word, yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's a cool and, word. Um, that's why hell is eternal. Okay. You know? So their choice, it's like with us. When we die, our choice is made. Uh-huh. You know, we've made the choice. It's definitive. It's irrevocable. Yeah. You know, we're either saved or we're damned at the end of our life. Even and, if we go to purgatory, we're saved, mm-hmm. you know. And how does that fit in with God's mercy? If God is, you know, infinitely merciful and it seems like we would constantly be getting another chance. But yeah. there's a certain point where we don't get another chance. Why why wouldn't we say God still would give you like why if you're in hell and you realize, oh man, I made a mistake. Why wouldn't he forgive you at that point? Because once one has made that irrevocable choice, they're not going to change their mind. Hmm. In other words, their definitive rejection of God is exactly that. So they remain in that state forever. Yeah. Um, I mean, we get into some mystery here. Uh, I mean, there are some people who believe that there's no one in hell because mm-hmm. of God's mercy. And that's really the next thing we're going to talk about, I think, Kyle, right? Well, yeah, because there's kind of a debate yeah. online right now, too. It, is it reasonable to hope that hell is empty or that that nobody is going to hell? You know, that debate that uh, debate on, on the Internet uh, really goes back to some things that Bishop Barron said that he was very criticized for. And actually, what Bishop Barron was expressing was a lot of the theology of a, of a very famous, renowned theologian, Father Hans Urs von Balthasar, who actually was a great theologian who was Pope Paul VI, put, had him on the International Theological Commission, hmm. and John Paul II named him a cardinal. He was very much honored by Pope Benedict XVI. So, so he was a great Catholic theologian, but he, he wrote a book and that was controversial and still is. And that's where we get into uh, the controversy. The name of the book, the title of the book is, Dare We Hope That All Men Be Saved? Um, hmm. And Bishop Barron, though not totally, but significantly, I think, adopts the position of Hans Urs von Balthasar. The question is, can we have this reasonable hope that everyone will be saved, that eventually that there's no one in hell? What does the church teach about this? The church 
doesn't say. The church teaches definitively that there is a hell. Mm -hmm. But the church does not teach definitively that there are people in hell. Um, there are we, fallen angels. That, there are fallen that angels, definitive? right. Okay. I think we kind of presume that it's probable, mm -hmm. you know, that there are people in hell. I mean, I think it's very probable. Mm -hmm. But should we hope that there's no one there? Uh, that's kind of the question. Is uh. it reasonable to hope that? And... I mean, that's a valid question, I think. Uh, but von Balthasar and Bishop Barron have been criticized quite a bit. Now, let me just talk about, uh, you know, exactly what von Balthasar says. First of all, he was a loyal son of the church. So he does not deny any of the dogmas of our faith. Mm -hmm. What are his key points? Because of what God has accomplished in Christ through the power of the cross... Von Balthasar says, we can reasonably hope that all people will be saved. Mm -hmm. And he says, the church has never claimed to know if any human beings are hell, which leaves open the theoretical possibility of universal salvation. Hmm. Now, there are two kinds of passages in the Bible that regard salvation and damnation. This is von Balthasar saying... There are some parts, uh, passages of Scripture that suggest that there are two final outcomes, heaven or hell. Obviously, Matthew 25, we see that. The goats and the sheep. The right. goats go to hell and the sheep right. go to heaven. But then there are other passages that suggest the salvation of all humanity. And these are positions that are in contradiction with each other. You know, either all will be saved or only some will be saved. Hmm. So there are these passages which kind of at least give us the possibility that hell might be empty. So, you know, the Gospel of John, chapter 12, verse 32, would kind of suggest the salvation of all humanity. And let me find that here in my Bible. Yes. Jesus said, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. All people. All people. Okay. There's another passage in St. Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. St. Paul writes, He has made known to us the mystery of his will as a plan for the fullness of time to gather up all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Mm-hmm. And there's other passages. So there are these biblical passages that one could say suggests that everyone might be saved. Okay. Now, there are other passages that kind of suggest the opposite. You know, for example, Jesus says, the gate is wide and the road broad that leads to destruction. And those who enter it are many. Mm -hmm. How narrow the gate and constricted the road that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Does that mean necessarily that he's talking about those who enter, you know, the broad gate are going to be eternally damned? Well, not necessarily. Mm -hmm. Perhaps they go through that gate, but they return and turn around, you sure. know, and go back. So 
But there are other, many other biblical passages that suggest that people have chosen eternal damnation. I mean, we talked about Matthew 25 and other passages, but the church hasn't made an authoritative declaration on this. Probably one of the passages that would be an argument for that there are people in hell would be Judas, where it says that it would have been, Jesus says it's better if he had never been born. Mm -hmm. Well, doesn't that suggest that he's in hell? Mm -hmm. But it can't prove that because it doesn't say that precisely that he's uh -huh. in hell. So there's some arguments on this. Um, and unfortunately, some have accused Bishop Barron or Cardinal von Balthasar as, as, uh, of heresy on this. I think that's going well way too far. Are they accusing them of universalism or yeah, being a universalist? Really accusing them of universalism, which is a heresy. Okay. Okay. Universalism goes back to origin in the early centuries of Alexandria, one of the greatest theologians of the early centuries of the church, but he fell into heresy. Okay. He fell into the heresy that we call universalism, which basically says that um, we know that all people will be saved. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's this certainty that there's no one in hell, that we know that the church teaches that hell is empty. Uh -huh. No, that's a heresy. The church doesn't teach that. But to be honest, neither Bishop Barron or Hans Urs von Balthasar are universalists. Mm -hmm. They speak of a reasonable hope, but they don't claim that they know mm -hmm. that everyone is saved. And, and really, Bishop Barron doesn't say that he he thinks everybody's saved. Right. He doesn't really say that. He hopes that hopes. everyone will be saved. And in a sense, when we say the Fatima prayer, we ask Jesus, forgive us our sins and save us from the fires of hell. Lead all souls to heaven, right. especially those in most need of thy mercy. Yeah. So in a sense, we have some of that hope. We pray that right. God will lead all, Jesus will lead all souls into heaven. I don't think Our Lady would ask us to pray for something that's impossible, right. you know? Well, and if we if we break this down to a, um, an individual level, you might have an uncle that made a lot of bad life choices, but you can hope that he's forgiven and he's in heaven. We could look at somebody as horrible as, as Hitler, and we could say, look, who knows what kind of mental disorders he had and, and that maybe his culpability has decreased. And, or maybe and we at the hope, moment before he died. Right. We could hope know. that he's in heaven out of charity, even though he's done such horrible things. And then couldn't we apply that to everybody, that we would hope that they would be in heaven? I, I, I can see how this is a very charitable thing that we should pray for, even if it's not probable. Right. Exactly. Now, it's interesting. There are some other early church fathers who taught universal salvation or something I'd say that was close to it. People like St. Gregory of Nyssa and Maximus the Confessor. And so there was fighting over this even in the early centuries. But then, and there were some, I mean, when you think about Teresa Benedict of the Cross, Edith Stein, she said that uh, it was infinitely improbable that someone would reject God and, and totally and be in hell. So, I mean, we do mm. see this, this current among some of the saints, but then there are other saints who very clearly believe that there are people in hell or the majority of people are in hell. Mm -hmm. I mean, read St. Augustine 
And St. Thomas Aquinas, it sounds like they believe that there's more people in hell than there are in heaven. And then there's um, Pope Benedict, which I really agree with, where he said in his encyclical on Christian hope that he presumes that the majority of people go to purgatory. Hmm. I think that way, and ultimately to heaven. But I would also think it's more probable that there are people in hell. That's just my own personal belief. But, you know, so, so there is certain latitude on this because of the church's teaching. So, so we have to affirm by our faith that hell exists and it's a possibility for people. Mm-hmm. One scripture you didn't mention is how the rich man is going to get into heaven. And he says, it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter heaven. And then he says, well, how is this possible for anybody then? So with God, all All things things are possible. possible. So even though we don't deserve heaven and many people might deserve hell, like it's possible that God can make possible what seems like is impossible, that a camel would pass through an eye of a needle. I mean, there's this, this idea of hope is so important. I mean, we don't want people ever despairing or losing hope of salvation. That each of us should hope with the grace of God to persevere until until the end and to obtain the joy of heaven. I mean, if we don't have that hope, then our lives are miserable and, and really then we don't really have faith and trust in God. So we do pray for all people to be saved even in some of the prayers of the liturgy. But I don't agree with, um, I mean, I personally, and this is all personal opinion, I don't agree that the majority are in hell, and I don't, and I know Bishop Barron doesn't believe that, but I don't know, maybe they are. Yeah. Uh, I agree with Pope Benedict, that the great majority of people probably have some openness to God mm-hmm. and some love in their hearts and need purification, need purgatory. So these are all matters of speculation. And it's interesting, even though Bishop Barron, it's interesting, he disagrees with Augustine and Aquinas on this. Uh And he's a great big fan of Augustine and Aquinas. So it's interesting, yeah. So we don't need to go deep into this, but just maybe your quick thoughts on fiction stories about hell, like Dante's Inferno or C.S. Lewis's screw tape letters. Are these things that we should take a lot of stock in? Are are they good ways for us to visualize something that we have a hard time grasping? Or maybe should we not put too much stock in in something like that? Oh, I would would recommend both of those works. Okay. Uh, But there are some other things I wouldn't recommend. But, you know, speculations, idle speculations that aren't really, that are terrifying, for example. Uh But I I would highly recommend Dante's Inferno. Okay. I mean, it's, uh, well, the whole divine comedy is Purgatorio and his paradise as well, Paradiso. They have great courses on Dante's Inferno, or Dante's Divine Comedy at Notre Dame, by the way. I would love to attend. Okay. But the Inferno describes Dante's journey through hell, and he's guided by the ancient Roman poet Virgil. And in the poem, hell is depicted as nine concentric circles of torment, Mm -hmm. and they're located within the earth. It is the realm of those who have rejected God, They've yielded to the temptations of the devil. They're different 
appetites, violence, their intellect was perverted. And so really the level of punishment one has in hell is according to the gravity of the sin. Mm -hmm. So in these different circles of hell, you have, for example, those who are in hell because of their greed Mm. or in hell because of murder Mm -hmm. or they're in hell because of, of violence, because of hypocrisy, all kinds of sins. And it's really quite deep, amazing poetry. And anyhow, we don't have time to get into it. It would be good. And I'm no Dante expert, Uh but, but it would be something to, you know, to read. But I also say his Purgatorio and Paradiso as well. All right. Well, we did have a listener submitted question about some of this, but I think we might have to save it for another time because we're, we're running a little low here on time. But uh, thank you again for another episode. And hopefully we'll soon get to an episode on heaven and kind of round out this trilogy. We'll have a nice little set here, a three-piece set that everybody can listen to. Uh, By the way, if someone wants uh to read more about uh, demons and the devil, there's a, a, the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith back in 1975 had a document entitled Christian Faith and Demonology. Okay. So if someone's interested in demonology, I don't know how many people want to know more about demons, (laughs) but, uh, but it is a, a great document, Christian Faith and Demonology from the Vatican Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. Okay. Great. Well, uh, find a link to that and put it in the show notes. Thank you so much, Bishop, for another great episode. Could we get your Episcopal blessing before we go? Sure. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now and forever. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Who made heaven and earth. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Bishop. You're welcome, Kyle. Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit spokestreet.com.